Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Dufton, and today we'll be talking to Dennis McDougall, author of the new book, Operation White Rabbit, LSD, the DEA, and the Fate of the Acid King. McDougall is a veteran American author and journalist, as well as a native Californian who's been called LA's number one muckraker. The author of 11 works of nonfiction and two novels, Operation White Rabbit is his newest book. Dennis, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Emily. So you're really prolific. <laughs> this is oh, your 14th you. book. I did, 14 is amazing. Um, but your previous works were quite different from Operation White Rabbit. Uh, they were things like a biography of Bob Dylan, the business of Hollywood, uh, even an examination of Jack Nicholson's career. Uh, now, there are certainly ties uh, between Hollywood and the drug industry, both legal and illegal, uh, but it doesn't seem like what you were writing about uh, concerned drugs too much before. So how did you develop your career and what brought you to write about LSD? Well, uh, I'll answer the first question first and the second one second, which seems like a logical way to go about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm a, a veteran journalist. I got my start in newspapering, uh, which uh, for your younger listeners, um, it was a quaint way of uh, communicating in the last century. Uh, people actually printed things on paper and uh, uh, delivered them uh, to your uh, driveway each morning. That doesn't happen much anymore, but uh, back in my day, uh, I was a newspaper reporter, uh, and then I did some broadcast with uh, CNN. Uh, most of my career uh, I spent at the Los Angeles Times, although I did uh, a stint at the New York Times about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And that got me into um, uh, looking at uh, uh, publishing books. Uh, I found that a newspaper and even a magazine kind of limited you. So uh, books gave you an opportunity re- to really dive in and dig into a subject um, uh, way down deep. Uh, so that's how I got into uh, writing books. It's been been doing it for 20 years now and, um, and enjoying the heck out of it. Um, <laughs> uh, and in answer to your second question, uh, how did I get involved in writing about drugs? Well, uh, I got a call one day from uh, uh, an, another writer that uh, I uh, did a couple of magazine articles with. And um, she told me that the, um, the guy who invented LSD, Dr. Albert Hoffman, was turning 100 years old and was celebrating his birthday in Basel, Switzerland, and that it would be a great opportunity to uh, meet everybody who had ever had anything to do with LSD uh, and try to capture some interviews with them, maybe turn it into uh, at least a a lengthy magazine article and possibly a book. So Mm. I went to his birthday party, and sure enough, everybody who had had anything to do with psychedelics showed up. Wow. What year was this? Uh, it's 2006, wow. January of 2006. And uh, actually, Hoffman lived to be, I think, Iron Three. I think he, he died two or three years later. At any rate, um, we did do the magazine piece for um, uh, Playboy magazine. Um, but we, at the same time, saw this grand opportunity to maybe turn it in, into a documentary film because. Uh, the real history of LSD and psychedelics had never really been put on film before. So we hired a film crew in Switzerland and uh, did 
two days worth of interviews with uh, everyone and anyone who had anything to do with uh, psychedelics. And it was during this time that I heard about this guy who was doing two life sentences in a federal prison in the United States for the crime of having manufactured LSD. And that struck me as being a little draconian. Uh, I mean, there are murderers and rapists who get uh, less time uh, than the fellow that uh, I heard about. His name was William Leonard Picard. And somewhat ironic, given that you're so I did in a little Switzerland at a birthday party for uh, the man uh, who created LSD, uh, uh, celebrating celebrating the creation of this drug, and yet there's someone else in the United States serving two consecutive life sentences for its manufacturing. And imagine the cognitive dissonance of uh, that experience was, was somewhat pronounced. Just a tad. Actually, it was two life sentences plus 20 years. Oh, just in case, just in case he got through them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the additional punitive measure is important there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Picard used to joke with me that the 20 years was added on uh, because he was a Buddhist and they thought that perhaps he would have a, uh, a secondary life beyond the, the life sentences. So they wanted to make <laughs> absolutely sure that he never got out. Oh, if he gets off the wheel of samsara as a human again, <laughs> twenty years are coming for him. That's a, that is some, that is punitive. Um, but that's that's fascinating. So tell us a bit about this person, um, the man at the center of Operation White Rabbit. You know, the title of the book says it all. Who is this Acid King? Well, uh, Leonard Picard uh, was a, a prodigy. He was a, a, a science um, prodigy from the 1960s, uh, you know, graduated at the top of his class and uh, won all kinds of national awards, uh, wound up uh, going to Princeton. Um, but he uh, dropped out of Princeton uh, within a, a year of uh, showing up at the, at the gates because uh, um, he was busted for um, stealing a car and crossing state lines, um, none of which made any sense at the time. Uh, but uh, his father, who was an attorney, uh, struck a deal with the court to uh, have him uh, put away in a rehab in Connecticut in lieu of going to jail. And um, uh, Leonard had to drop out of Princeton and, uh, uh, and did his time uh, in psychiatric care. Uh, when he got out, um, he decided to um, move to the West Coast um, because this was the late 1960s and uh, he'd heard a lot about um, uh, LSD and um, uh, about uh, a new way of life uh, in, uh, in the Bay Area of, of California. Uh, he moved there, and for the next 20 years, um, uh, he, well, he, he went to school, uh, but never officially. And uh, he became an underground chemist. He learned the craft of, uh, of uh, organic chemistry and uh, began uh, apprenticing himself to people like uh, Stanley Owsley uh, and um, uh, the um, Brotherhood of Eternal Love, uh, all of whom were involved in the uh, manufacture and distribution of psychedelics in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and he uh, disappeared into the, the acid underground. Um, it, it's uh, the bulk of, of uh, Operation White Rabbit is uh, about who he was, how he grew up in uh, Atlanta um, with you know, very accomplished parents um, and, uh, and then how he, uh, fell into the acid underground and became, um, a, a, a rogue, um, manufacturer of LSD and other psychedelics and how he uh, eventually became a criminal in essence. Right. 
before we get into the um, the details of his uh, evolution, I guess you could say, I, I did think that that was one of the most fascinating elements of this book was how you know, beyond the absolutely wild story of Leonard himself, there's also you know this history of LSD production and use in America from basically the mid 20th century onward. And you have cameos from everybody who influenced uh, psychedelic American drug culture. So as you said, you know, there's there's uh, Alsley Stanley, uh, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. There's uh, Ram Dass, Timothy Leary, Sasha Shulgin, uh, Mark Kleiman, everybody, uh, everybody who's anybody um, concerned with this, this element of American drug history is in this book, which I thought was just so fun to kind of see them in a different uh, in a different way, sort of through the lens of Leonard. So mm-hmm. how does Leonard play into the larger history of LSD in America? Well, he knew all of these people uh, in one way or another. Um, some of them uh, um, very intimately. Uh, he was uh, essentially, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Alexander Shulgin, uh, also known to his friends as Sasha, uh, probably the premier uh, underground um, psychedelic chemist uh, of the 20th century. And, um, you know, Leonard made a, a point of uh, tracking him down and uh, apprenticing himself to, to Sasha um, in the, I guess it would have been the, uh, the early 80s or the late 70s. Uh, and they became very, very close Uh he, he, uh, he the, the fact that he knew all of these people in one way or another uh, and maintained that kind of communication even after he was busted uh, two or three times and did uh, he did a prison stint before the, uh, uh, the big bust in 2000. Uh, so he spent an awful lot of time behind bars, but he knew all of these people. And uh, from my vantage point, it looked like a golden opportunity to essentially tell the untold story of uh, psychedelic chemistry uh, from Albert Hoffman on uh, through the life and times of uh, this incredibly uh, colorful uh, and intelligent man uh, who was wrongly put behind bars uh, for uh, the crime of, of, of being a chemist. Mm. It, it, it's, oh, it's such a rich story. It's so, um, it's such a, it's such a great perspective. Uh, but before Leonard is a criminal, um, he's a, he's a businessman really. So how did Leonard get involved in the acid industry? Well, um, I mean, like any other good capitalist, he uh, he, he saw a, a a need and uh, and filled it. I mean, he he the law of supply and demand was uh, at least as important to him as uh, uh, as, as any uh, law of chemistry. Um, and the the man he he saw that the the demand was there that it always had been, but it, it uh, became more intense after 1970 when um, the Nixon, Nixon administration established the Drug Enforcement uh, Administration or agency um, and outlawed um, LSD and a host of other psychedelics, uh, made them Schedule One drugs and uh, and thus made it illegal to uh, possess them as well as certainly not to manufacture or distribute them. Um, he, you know, he, he learned that, um, uh, that not only does, is it profitable to manufacture the stuff, but um, uh, it, it can be equally profitable to, um, uh, to sell it. Um, and he, uh, he over time uh, established um, a, a network uh, of um, um, fellow travelers. Uh, I hesitate to call them 
distributors because the underground was such that uh, most of these people saw psychedelics in their use as being uh, tantamount to uh, a sacrament. Mm. Uh, they weren't selling a product. They were, uh, they were enlightening the world. You know, mm. I mean, that part of Timothy O'Leary's uh, evangelism uh, was true then as it remains so to today, at least in the mind of, of uh, psychonauts. I love that term psychonauts. Um, can you uh, describe it? And could you also tell us a little bit more about these associates of Leonard's? Because, you know, as I was reading Operation White Rabbit, I saw him having um, allies and antagonists uh, throughout his throughout his experience. Well, I, I tried to be as true to the the tale as told by uh, Picard as possible, uh, while uh, at the same time retaining uh, my uh, natural uh, journalistic obje- objectivity, or a, a, at least an a, attempt at that. Um, Leonard saw himself, uh, as I said, as, a, as an evangelist. And um, as I think, as I said before, he, he was busted once before. I mean, he was not a first-time offender, uh, which in part uh, accounted for uh, the, the terrible sentence that he wound up getting in uh, 2000. But he was busted for uh, uh, LSD manufacture in uh, the late 1980s, and he wound up going to a federal prison in in Los Angeles for uh, about four years. Uh, When he got out in 1992, um, he swore that uh, he had seen the light and he was changing his ways and uh, immediately went to a, a a Zen Buddhist center in San Francisco uh, and studied to become a, a, a Buddhist monk, uh, which in, essentially is what he ultimately did. Uh, uh, but, you know, he spent uh, a year or so at the um, Zen center. And at the same time, he was studying um, chemistry on the side at uh, Berkeley and uh, he had, um, uh, you had mentioned uh, Mark Kleiman, and uh, he, he met him while he was doing his prison time in L.A. Uh, and it was Kleiman who suggested that he consider going to uh, uh, the Kennedy School uh, at Harvard uh, and um, perhaps bringing his expertise in terms of drugs and drug manufacture, uh, to an uh, international diplomatic, um, uh, I don't know, career. Um, so Leonard applied and with Kleiman's help got into the Kennedy School and spent um, the middle part of the 1990s, about 1994 through 98, uh, studying at Harvard, and um, and he uh, earned a master's degree uh, in diplomacy, uh, and he began um, you know jetting around the world to every place you can think of that had any kind of a, a drug problem. And is this where he starts to develop some theories um, that have proven uh, quite prescient as far as uh, the opioid crisis right now? Is this where he starts doing his work on fentanyl? Absolutely. Uh, One of the first places that he visited was um, uh, Russia, and they were already developing fentanyl there. Uh, And he tracked down a fellow in um, Wichita, Kansas, of all places, uh, who was doing a 20-year stint for manufacturing fentanyl and selling it in the United States. Uh, a, a, it was shown in court that this particular fellow, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but at any rate, he, um, uh, his, his 
fentanyl was responsible for at least a dozen deaths of people overdosing on it. Um, and Leonard saw this as, you know, a warning sign because, uh, uh, you know, he, he wrote a paper and de delivered it uh, to the uh, fac faculty club at Harvard in 1996, I believe. Uh, but it was about uh, the, the coming opioid uh, crisis that would be uh, international in scope, according to him. And he blamed, you know, the development of uh, fentanyl uh, as um, being at, uh, uh, at the base of this, uh, this problem that was going to be cropping up. Uh, and 25 fentanyl. years later, he's, in, he's proven entirely, uh, entirely correct. Um, and, and it helped him, you know, I might just add here very quickly that it was that prescience that in part um, resulted in his um, re release last summer from prison um, because he, you know, he appealed uh, through his attorney to uh, Congress itself. Uh, each and every member of Congress got a, a letter and a study from him. Uh, and the Rand Corporation, in its latest paper on uh, the opioid uh, crisis, cited uh, Leonard's um, groundbreaking studies as, as, uh, uh, as being at the heart of um, uh, the, the, the current crackdown. Wow. Well, so, so here he is in the late 90s. Um, he's doing uh, some incredible work uh, at the Harvard School, uh, at Harvard. He's exploring the potentials of uh, fentanyl and what that might, uh, how, how that might affect American drug policy. He's a Zen uh, Buddhist monk. And then a couple of years later, he's in jail for two consecutive life sentences. I, what happens? Well, uh, I would not want to mislead, uh, you know, readers and or your, your listeners uh, to uh, make Leonard look like he's strictly an academic or uh, a theologian. Uh, he was many different people. I mean, obviously, uh, his uh, very first felony back when he was still in his teens was uh, Grand Theft Auto. Um, so Leonard, um, you know, walked a thin line his entire life uh, between um, uh, academia, uh, a scholastic, uh, ascetic life, and, uh, and and a walk on the wild side. <laughs> he he, uh, he he knew uh, loads and loads of uh, professors. But at the same time, he was um, friendly with and um, literally trafficking with uh, um, people who um, had extensive uh, criminal records. Uh, what, what happened, I mean, the big, I don't know, what led to his downfall, his ultimate downfall, uh, was uh, meeting a... Um, uh, a, a fellow uh, named Skinner, Gordon Skinner, um, who was himself uh, an amateur uh, chemist and who took an early interest uh, way back when he was in high school in Oklahoma uh, in um, psychedelics and, you know, lots of psychedelics way beyond LSD. Uh, he, you know, he perfected a, uh, a recipe for uh, DMT, which is uh, um, a, a strong form of um, uh, hallucinogen um, and uh, ayahuasca. Uh, I'm sure that uh, most people know what that is by now. Uh, Skinner was, uh, but, but Skinner was also, you know, he made... Uh, Picard looked like a, a piker when it came to uh, translating his chemical knowledge uh, uh, into felonies. Um, uh, he got busted for 
uh, carrying gunny sacks of peyote across the uh, Mexican border. And um, oh, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, well, he, he had a, uh, a freighter full of um, uh, marijuana that uh, he had to land in Jamaica at one point. And uh, he was busted numerous times. Uh, and uh, he, as a direct result of all of these busts, uh, made deals to stay out of jail and out of prison um, th- with the Drug Enforcement Administration and uh, state uh, narcotics agencies where he got busted. Right. Uh, and is this, so, uh, is this kind of where, is this where the DEA essentially gets involved? You know, the DEA is obviously a core part of this story. It's part of the subtitle. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the DEA's involvement with, uh, with Leonard's downfall? What, what was Operation White Rabbit? Well, um, the DEA was closing in on Skinner. I mean, for the umpteenth time, uh, he, you know, by the late 1990s, he had uh, managed to uh, make enough money uh, legally and especially illegally to purchase his very own retired Atlas silo, uh, Atlas missile silo. And can you uh, describe briefly what that is? Because I, um, I was I when I think of silos, I think of you know <laughs> the the large you know semi rounded uh, or you know con, uh, you know sort of tubular things on a farm that hold like corn. And I had to watch a couple YouTube videos, but I realized that's not. <laughs> this isn't holding corn and it's not above ground. Because <laughs> can you tell us more about what an Atlas missile silo is? <laughs> I, I think you're cutting out a little bit here, Emily, but uh, oh, sorry. Uh, but I got the gist of what you were asking. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, well, in the, uh, during the height of the Cold War in the 1950s and uh, early 60s, um, the uh, paranoia in Washington, D.C. was such that they decided the best way to uh, counter any kind of a, atomic attack on the United States would be to have uh, defensive mis- missiles um, uh, ready to go. And uh, Congress approved uh, these Atlas missiles, uh, and they were located at... Uh, throughout the, the Midwest uh, and the Plains states um, in sec- what were then secret locations. Uh, uh, you know, you, you have to dig down pretty deep to um, hide an Atlas missile. Uh, so they created these silos that were, um, you know, um, I don't know, uh, several stories deep uh, under the ground. And um, eastern Kansas was one of the favorite places for these missiles. And um, uh, the one in particular that we're talking about here uh, that uh, Skinner uh, purchased, because you know, after the Cold War came to an end, they decided the, the government decided they didn't need these any longer, so they they sold them. Uh, and Skinner uh, saw that uh, this one was up for sale. It was located um, right outside of Wamigo, uh, which is um, uh, characterizes itself as the home of uh, of the Wizard of Oz. Has an uh, an Oz museum and everything's named after L. Frank Baum and and the Wizard and Dorothy and what have you in Wamigo. So he had Skinner had this uh, Atlas missile silo, and he converted it to a um, a laboratory and uh, a, a test site for uh, the various and sundry psychiatric or not psychiatric but psychedelic. Uh, compounds that he uh, was coming up with. And he would stage um, uh, parties and um, mini conventions and invite 
people in in the acid underground to come to his silo and try out his uh, his latest concoctions. It's a silo um, party, you know. No, why not? <laughs> there you go. Makes sense, doesn't it? If so I had a silo. <laughs> you mean you you don't have one? I'm uh, way you're slipping. I know. You need a silo. I gotta get a silo if I'm gonna be a real drug historian. I you know, it's a requirement. Oh, so. absolutely. Um So anyway, what happened uh, at this silo? Yeah. <laughs> well Skinner uh Skinner and uh, Picard met at a um Oh, Picard maintains that it was at a uh, um, uh, a conference of uh, ethnobotany in um, in San Francisco. Skinner, on the other hand, maintains that they met earlier uh, through a, a, a third chemist uh, who operated and continues to operate to this day. Uh, out of Taos, New Mexico, um, that you know exactly how and when they met is uh, up in the air, um, but uh, they did in fact meet, and they uh, saw that they had they shared interests, uh, and um, and they began um, um, putting together an acid enterprise. Uh, with Leonard as the uh, the mastermind, the master chemist, and Skinner as the essentially the chief financial officer, and um, they they began you know making the stuff, and uh, or at least Leonard would make the stuff, and uh, uh, and then Skinner would. Uh, find ways to sell it and uh, launder the, the money that they got. And it amounted to, I mean, if you believe the Drug Enforcement Administration, it amounted to millions and millions of dollars. Uh, if you, uh, on the other hand, uh, believe uh, both Picard and Skinner, one of the few things that they do agree on, it was... Uh, you know, probably a, a few hundred thousand, but uh, certainly not the huge amount of money that uh, the DEA uh, later uh, adver- advertised it as being. Right. Now, their their relationship is <laughs> is a very complicated one. It's, it's really fraught. And as they move toward kind of the end of their story, uh, as we move toward Leonard's downfall, um, they both seem to be kind of losing uh losing control in a lot of ways um skinner is an incredibly violent person uh some of the descriptions that you wrote of what he did were uh, shocking and horrible uh, but leonard's also kind of losing uh losing his grips with reality so i was wondering if you can kind of bring us up to the downfall. I don't want to you know ruin the book for anybody this is such an exciting thing but um to kind of discuss sort of how they were feeling toward the end of their relationship with each other and, and what ultimately kind of brought Leonard to this point where he was given two consecutive life sentences plus 20 years. Well, um, again, you have to go back to who Leonard was and what he was, what his ultimately, his ultimate objective was. Um, you know, he, he got a taste of, uh, of Harvard and the academic life uh, while he was working on his master's at, at the Kennedy School. And uh, he, he decided the, the best way to succeed uh, in the upper world was um, uh, by staging a uh, symposium, uh, which would... Uh, expand upon what he'd already been explore, exploring uh, with fentanyl and and the uh, emerging uh, and the new drugs, both psychedelic and otherwise, uh, that he he saw as uh, being 
uh, possibly a scourge in the 21st century. So he, he was very interested in trying to come up with enough money to stage this international symposium at Harvard. And um, uh, Skinner, who was, uh, in addition to all of his, uh, his other accomplishments, was uh, an excellent pathological liar, uh, came up with a uh, phony baloney idea uh, about uh, his good friend, uh, the financier uh, Warren Buffett, uh, paying the uh, the freight for this symposium, which would amount to three or four hundred thousand dollars, and uh, he used that to string Leonard along for. Uh, at least a year, maybe closer to two, uh, and involved him uh, more and more deeply in uh, his own version of of the drug trade uh, operating out of his uh, missile silo. Uh, And when it looked like the Drug Enforcement Administration was going to finally close in on Skinner, because you know it's kind of hard to keep the those those parties um, under wraps. Uh, sooner or later, somebody's gonna uh, gonna squeal on you. Uh, Skinner made a deal with uh, a, um, uh, a hard charging uh, young DEA agent out of San Francisco uh, to uh, rat out. Picard and essentially frame him uh, as the uh, uh, the acid king. I mean, uh, Leonard never called himself uh, the acid king and has always maintained that much of the story was made up in the, in uh, Gordon Skinner's uh, imagination. But um, but he was the the target and. Uh, uh, the the DEA set up a, a sting operation, um, and on election day of two thousand, um, when George Bush triumphed over Al Gore for the presidency, uh, Picard uh, was being busted in Wamego, Kansas, for uh, being the biggest uh, underground. Uh, LSD chemist in history. <laughs> it's it's a really um, extraordinary uh, story, the way you describe uh, the bust. Um, and it's been told a couple of times now that Picard is back in the news uh, after his uh, July 2020 release from prison, which I do want to discuss, but very briefly, there is a photo of you and Leonard in the book uh, taken at the Tucson Federal Prison where... Um, where Leonard was being held. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with him? Um, how, how did you get to know him? And how did you arrange interviews when he was incarcerated? <laughs> well, um, well, uh, you know, going back to Hoffman's birthday party in 2006, uh, you know, I, I saw this story, uh, the story of uh, this Picard character as being you know, almost Shakespearean, uh, and uh, and certainly worth telling. Um, so I tracked down where he was in the federal prison system and became his pen pal initially. Um, after uh, you know an exchange of uh, many letters, uh, I got on the phone with him, and we uh, uh, got to know each other that way. And as time went on, um, I discovered that Leonard had uh, um, literary ambitions of his own. He wanted to tell uh, the story of uh, of the bust from his point of view. Um, so I encouraged him to enroll in a prison writing workshop, uh, which he did, and uh, he got a taste of uh, publishing some of his essays and uh, in uh, a, 
a prison journal in uh, um, in Arizona, uh, where he was doing his time in Tucson Federal Pres- uh, Correctional Institute. Um, and he decided he was going to, uh, you know, write his own book. So I encouraged him with that. Uh, he, uh, you know, he began floating stuff past me to look at. And at the same time, uh, I was writing a, a book at the time uh, about uh, Bob Dylan. Uh, and I sent pages to him. And he, you know, we, we exchanged um, our work. We got to be increasingly friendly. I met his writing coach. Uh, and then um, I uh, applied to, um, to visit him and um, was accepted. So I, I went down to Tucson and uh, met him in the flesh uh, a couple of times. And then that evolved into a, a stronger relationship when he finally was uh, allowed email. Um, and uh, I started to visit him more often. I, feel, I, I would stop in, uh, in Tucson a couple of times a year. And uh, uh, all of, I mean, then he f- finally published his book, uh, which is available out there on Amazon uh, called The Rose of Paracelsus. Uh, quite a tome, um, <laughs> 650 50 pages or thereabouts. Um, and, uh, you know, he developed this cult following uh, over and above his uh, uh, legendary career as a, a, a chemist. Um, right, right. And now, so he was planning on spending the rest of his natural life in prison given two consecutive life sentences in 20 years. But then less than a year ago, on July 24th, 2020, he was suddenly released from prison. Uh, it really changes the end of your book. <laughs> you sort of tag on, you, you know, you, yes, you discuss what you thought the end was going to be and then what the end actually ended up being. Why was he released mm-hmm. from prison? What happened? Well, it, it goes back to this fentanyl thing that we were talking about earlier. He... Uh, he had pretty much exhausted his uh, appeals, been turned down re- repeatedly by the Tenth Circuit. Uh, so his his final play was uh, a compassionate release, uh, which would be based in part on uh, his age. Uh, Leonard just turned seventy five and had some health issues, and. Uh, and uh, you know the, the the changes in attitudes towards drugs in general and psychedelics in particular since he had been incarcerated, things had you know, the the culture had changed considerably in uh, in that twenty years, um, and through his attorney, um, he. Uh, he put together uh, a presentation for uh, Congress uh, and the U.S. Senate and uh, the o- uh, Obama administration um, and uh, began his appeal back in 2015, I think, or thereabouts. And, um, and they just kept at it and kept sending uh, writs and, and uh, uh, appeals to the uh, through the Bureau of Prisons, and ultimately, uh, one day out of the blue, a um, uh, federal appeals judge um, issued this um, uh, this release and said, "You know, I, I'm summarizing here because it was several pages long, but essentially, the judge said." Uh, this guy doesn't deserve, deserve this. Um, he's done enough time. Let him out. And uh, and Leonard was literally told 
one day and had to pack up his belongings from uh, he'd collected in prison for the past 20 years and leave the next day. He didn't even, you know, have a, I mean, fortunately, uh, the mother of his, his son um, lived in New Mexico, not too many miles away. And uh, he was able to quickly contact her. But even she was, uh, wasn't able to get down to pick him up in time. He had to get on a, a, a midnight bus out of Tucson and, uh, and go to Albuquerque, uh, where she picked him up the following day. Uh, I it, can't imagine what that must have been like. Complete surprise, <laughs> pleasant yeah. surprise to be but, released from yeah, prison was, uh, overnight. And everyone just... that he got out. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's and absolutely now he's extraordinary. Working, he's working as a paralegal of all things <laughs> for a law firm in Santa Fe. Wow. So, um, so he's working as a paralegal. How is he doing? And uh, what did he think of your book? You're breaking up again, Emily. Oh, sorry. Um, so how is he I'm doing? And can you hear me now? Yeah, can I can you? hear you. Okay. Um, I'll make a note of that 46 minutes. Uh, edit that out. So how is he doing now? You said he's 75. He's working as a paralegal, but he is free. Um, how is he doing? And what did he think of your book? Well, uh, he, I mean, I let him see it before I published it. But I made the same deal that I made with a couple of other subjects who granted me access on previous books. I said, uh, I will let you read it, but, uh, you know, I'm, uh, you, you don't have last say on, uh, on what's published. Uh, you can make suggestions. And if you find something that's inaccurate, I certainly want to correct it. Uh, but in so far as the the tone and uh, who I talk to and what I quote you know, as saying, uh, that's completely up to me. He accepted those terms and um, he did read it. He did object to uh, several things, uh, but uh, if they were, um, if he, if his objections uh, reached into something other than uh, accuracy. Um, I told him, you know, that's just the way it is. Uh, that's, you know, I, I have to be true to my readers first, uh, not to the su subject that I'm writing about. And, you know, I mean, to his credit, um, I, Leonard get, got that and continues to get that. Um, he ultimately, you know, he, he would have changed some things, I'm sure. Uh, but he liked it. He ex accepted uh, the book and said that it was, uh, you know, an, a, a true por portrayal of uh, who he was and where he came from and, um, uh, and, and where he has ended up. Oh, which is the highest praise you can get when you're writing about a, a living subject. Um, so that's great. <laughs> yeah. And insofar as uh, how he's doing, well, you know, as I said, he got a job right away and uh, he reunited with his children, um, all of which was uh, very good. I understand recently that he's had some, uh, some health problems, but... Um, uh, he's dealing with them, and um, and he's adjusting well, I think. Uh, wow. he, did, he did tell me a, uh, um, a little story about uh, after he got out, he, after he, he left uh, prison, you know, he had to get to the bus station. Um, I'm not even sure that they drove him to the bus station, but somehow he got there in time to catch the bus. And, uh, and he wanted to uh, warn his, uh, uh, his, his girlfriend um, that he was on his way. Uh, and he was looking around for a payphone. <laughs> Somebody saw him and offered, uh, offered the, his cell phone to him. And uh, and he had to 
uh, spend five minutes getting a lecture on how to use it because <laughs> he had no idea. Of course, of uh, course. <gasps> so wow. he, he's had a, a kind of a, a, a Rip Van Winkle kind of uh, awakening to the brave new world that we all have come to accept. But, you know, I mean, when he was busted and went away, um, the, the Internet was, uh, you know, barely five years old. And uh, none of what we take as, uh, take for granted today is uh, uh, even existed. So he's had to make a, a lot of adjustments. Right. It's a whole new world. It must be. Um Okay, well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Dennis, I just want to thank you for coming on the show today and discussing this new book, uh, which is an absolutely incredible biography of uh, Leonard Picard. It's, again, it's called Operation White Rabbit, LSD, the DEA, and the Fate of the Acid King. And it was released last year by Skyhorse Publishing. So in closing, I just want to ask you our customary last question, which is, what project are you working on now? <laughs> Okay. Well, at the moment, I am um, I, I'm doing several things. I'm um, working on a documentary. Um, I'm co-producing with a, an old friend uh, about uh, Rodney King, mm. uh, who was uh, I, I befriended um, 25 years ago, shortly after his famous uh, beating on TV. Uh, so that's in the works, uh, doing the, uh, uh, documentary, uh, of his life story. Yeah, and I'm working on a, uh, uh, an extended history of, uh, the failed mental health system mm. in the United States since Ronald Reagan dismantled it, uh, 40 years ago. And, oh, that's huge. Uh, the, yeah sorry effects that all of that has had on mental patients throughout the country. And um, I'm also, um, I'm also working on, um, on bringing a couple of uh, my previous books to uh, the screen, hopefully uh, the big screen in, one instance, uh, uh, my book has been um, uh, optioned for a uh, uh, feature film on the Robert Blake, uh, Bonnie Bakley murder of, um, uh, what was it, 1999, I guess it was. I wrote a book called uh, Blood Cold, and that's being turned into a motion picture. Uh, I'm also working on uh, a, a series based on my book about the history of the Los Angeles Times. Wow. So I'm keeping, keeping busy. Yeah, you have nothing going on. Well, whenever these new books come out or if they're re-released, uh, we look forward to having you back on New Books Network again. Thank you again so much for talking to us today. My pleasure. been great fun. <laughs>